0: This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, Episode 2, with guest Delphine Muzo. Hello everyone, I'm your host Daria Savorova, and welcome to today's show. Delfine is non-executive director at Fnac Dati, member of the board of advisors at Decathlon and Flaconi. She consults companies and a mother of four children. Yes, this is all possible with some special insights Delfine shared with me on this episode. As a former vice president of markets at Zalando, she shared her customer success stories and how to map a market launch. And most importantly, why attention to detail is your secret key to results as a leader. Not only is she a fierce supporter of diversity and leads several initiatives to empower women, she is actively helping women to become board members of well-known companies. Want to learn more about this? Join me for this episode's conversation with Delphine Mouzeau. Delphine, welcome and thank you for joining me in the studio today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I want to directly jump into a question that I was pondering about on my way to the studio. You're a board member, part of governing council, doing consulting, running many initiatives in parallel, and in addition to this, here's the main part you're mother of four children. How do you manage?
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, I have to say one thing which has been bothering me over the years uh, is that people say uh, associate my success with the four kids. It's you know it's a big like when people tell you you look uh, young for your age. You'd love to have the for your age out. So yeah. <laughs> so it's true. I think it's very important to say that motherhood and career can be going together. It comes with a lot of sacrifices, but I think it shouldn't undervalue you know your accomplishment. And I think all the women who have kids and have a career we we'll have a great career with that kid. You know, everything is right and should be looked separately. Um, but I think the key thing to be able to manage both uh, things is that it means you have to drop others. You know, like the, the, the idea that you can have it all is a big fat lie. So if you have uh, several kids and uh, uh, same as my situation, you're a single mom for a big chunk of uh, the time that you're raising those children, you have to make deep choices. And I think it starts with being able to decide what you like doing and what you don't like doing, regardless of what people think. So, for instance, when I arrived in Berlin, my kids were going to school with the Uber. And I have to say, I was not super comfortable with the idea of not bringing my kids to school. I felt like a bad mom. And when the taxi driver was saying, sorry, ma'am, I'm not taking five people. And I said, no, sorry, I'm not coming. And we were looking with big eyes like, oh, I'm taking those four kids on my own. That was a bit scary and I felt a bit bad. But I had to make a choice. Either I would do my career and be able to work properly my hours, or I would have to work really, really late at night to compensate the time that I would have to bring my kids to school. So those are choices which are difficult. It's also choices around, you know, yourself. You know, am I going to spend a lot of time seeing my friends and come back really drunk in the evening? Or do I need to moderate because I know my week coming ahead is really tiring and I cannot afford to do everything. So it's all about making the right choices. And what would be your other
0: tips and tricks
1: um, of balancing motherhood and a full-time job? So first, I think um, there is a big question is getting started with motherhood. I see a lot of young women and they're not finding the right time between my career is advanced enough, I'm in the mood, when should I get started with having kids? And I have a bad truth to say, it's never the right moment. So I think first you need to, you know, jump in this cold water and say, okay, I'm up for this challenge and let's see what's going to happen. And maybe you're going to love motherhood and stop working. That's also fine, you know, and maybe you want to go back to work very quickly. You need to leave very, everything very open. And then um, I think delegating, delegating, delegating is great. I always say parenting and leaderships are very close. And I think you need to delegate new work as a leader as well as you need to delegate home. So finding the right person to help you at the right moment in the right tasks. For me, I've decided to put a price tag to my time. Anything that can delegate, which is less than 20 euros an hour, I will delegate it. So... You know, it's from the chores at home uh, to babysitting to maybe getting some stuff that you love doing yourself. Like, I don't know, maybe you you like uh, stitching your curtains, but no, you get them done because you cannot do everything. So that's uh, that's something that you have to do.
0: And during the pandemic,
1: what is your number one advice to working parents? So I think every situation is different and I can look only for myself having teenage kids. Um, I had three teenagers at my place at the same time. And uh, it's very challenging because um, their main word was chill, mom, chill. Life is long. It's only a year in this life. And I wanted to get them to to use the best of their time. So I was really pushing a lot. And I think what helped me is really uh, set up a routine. So we agreed together on what we would like to do. I have to say it was really challenging to maintain the routine, but um, the rare days, especially at the beginning when we really managed to do the full routine, meaning like waking up early, having sports together, having lunch at a fixed time, going out to get fresh air, having some separate time for quality time and separate time for work, it really worked. And I think this is something that I've observed. People who have very strong routines... I've heard even some women saying, you know, I dress up in the morning, put my makeup and change room. And I've got a tiny place. So changing room means really going on the other side of the table. Those routines really help you going.
0: Thank you for the advice on that. You worked in Paris, Amsterdam, and now you're in Berlin. I like to ask my guests, what brings them to this city?
1: So actually, it's a, it's a long trip. So maybe I'll I'll go back in time. When I was in Amsterdam, I was working and uh, I was pregnant for my uh, fourth uh, child. And um, my ex-husband at that time was having really a a good uh, move in his career. And uh, he was working for a gem company and it felt like it was the right time for him to go to the headquarters, basically to have uh, some uh, links, you know, with the executive teams and be able from them to bounce back, uh, being, for instance, the country manager in a country. So the idea was to stay two, three years in Germany and then go into another country. So we moved to uh, Erlangen, which is in the middle of Germany. And I think it's uh, it's not something specific for Germany. I think it's everywhere. Um, if you're not in the big cities, it's way more difficult as a foreigner. So I had expected it would be difficult because I was not speaking a word of German. I had not done German at school. And, you know, my partner would be a top exec. And I think there is something around maintaining middle level carrier, uh, being both working and when one is becoming top exec, it becomes really difficult because, you know, like agendas are really more complicated to, you know, make work together. Uh, of course, there is some money involved. So then, you know, your difference in salaries is not making, you know, re- the reason why you should stop everything. So it's it's becoming more challenging. So I knew those two elements would make it difficult. Um, What worked well is that um, thanks to a headhunter, I managed to find some work as a freelancer. So that was really, really good, even though not speaking a word of German. What was way more challenging, it was really difficult to get some help. And I, I mentioned it before, you know, if you really want to work, you need to have help. And finding a cleaning lady, finding a babysitter was so difficult in the middle of Germany because it's an area where there is no unemployment, there is no immigration and really nobody wants to do that kind of job. So it was really, really challenging. And for many, multiple reasons, uh, instead of taking a job in another country, my ex-husband took a woman in his team, uh, which basically drained our marriage. So for nine months, like the whole school year, I tried to maintain the situation and thought, you know, what's my next step? How, what do I do now? You know, and I was alone with those four kids, you know, being really at the deep down and decided I would move back to Amsterdam. You know, although I was French, you know, where I had all my roots and still an apartment was Amsterdam. So I kind of organized myself to, moved, uh, to move to back to Amsterdam at the end of June. And then in May, uh, a young and very nice woman from Zalando called me and said, yeah, we've got a job for you in Berlin. Uh, would you like to take that job? And she was, you know, like for all this recruitment process, I have to say, they've been always pushing me into coming and never really challenging me, which was very surprising. And um, so I, I, I really thought about it. Um, actually, um, I first said no, and she said, "You can, can you still have a discussion with our uh, founder over the phone?" So I discussed with Robert Gans, and and for an hour he tried to convince me uh, to come to Zanondo. And in my head it was like, you know, how can I do this? You know, I've got four kids. My plan is to go back to a safe area. I feel, you know, completely emotionally wasted here. It seems like I, I'm not able to, you know, to go to that level. And um, so funny thing, I, I, I hang up with Robert, go to dinner with my kids, and I ask my kids, you know, what do you think if we would go back to, Be- to, we would go to Berlin instead of going back to Amsterdam? And they still had a lot of friends in Amsterdam, and they were 12 and 11, uh, the oldest. And they said, I oh, mean, if we go back to, if we don't go back to Amsterdam and go to Berlin, I think I'll commit suicide. And the second one said, don't worry, I'll go to an orphanage. Oh, wow. I so, was <laughs> just like, oh, oh, oh. So I sent a very nice message to Robert uh, that I still have. Uh, sorry, nobody wants to have a failure. It's too stretchy for me. I cannot do it. Uh, but this woman in in the in the HR didn't give up, and she called me again and really motivated me and said, "Can you please come to Berlin? Just give us a bit of you know an afternoon of your time. Come visit us, see what it is, and then you can take a real decision." And I thought, yeah, that's fair, you know. And worst case, I'll sell them some consulting. So I come to Berlin, and then really they made a really nice time interviewing with the uh, the two founders, uh, with the head of JHR at that time, and. And then I thought, wow, this company is for me. I mean, I, I, I really, I, I felt like I would really thrive in that environment. And and they were really like so open and so willing to get me in. You know, they really wanted to have women on board. They really wanted to have um, foreign talents. So uh, I had experience in fashion and online. It, it, everything, the stars aligned. So you're just like, okay. So I went back to the airport. I called my mom and said, oh, what do I do? I think I need to do it. And she said... Everything you really wanted to do in life, you succeeded, so just go for it. I just even if my mom says I need to do it, then I have to do it. So I called the movers and say, "Guys, we're not moving to Amsterdam in three weeks, we're moving to Berlin. I don't have a flat yet, but it's going to work out. Oh wow, <laughs> so in three weeks to say, I arrived in a crash in Berlin. On top of that, Zalando went IPO. So my plan was to start working in October and I had to start working before the IPO to get the interesting package. So I started working in August before the kids were back to school. And it's been a really difficult ride. I say all this because I see sometimes women, you know, refraining from taking risk and also thinking risk might be like um, being offered a big job. The thing is really compared to where you are, where you want to be. And I think trusting that stars will align, you feel it, you know, when things are meant to be and that you will get the support you need along the way. Um, I have to say, I've been blessed with a fantastic apartment right away, but I've also met really fantastic women who've supported me, you know, a group of French friends who came uh, next to my office to have lunch with me on a very regular basis to cheer me up, you know, a fantastic babysitter who would prepare pack lunch for me when I had to go to the hospital to see my kids because they were, you know, there for a night and, you know, like it, it works out. It means the choices that I've mentioned before needs to be even stronger. It was work, kids and very little social life, but you know, when you want to do it for a reason, you just go for it and and it works out.
0: It was not easy to make those choices. Seems like a lot of things on the plate, but yet you were you do not regret any moment any part of that choice.
1: No, I think the the choice that was very clear for me is that I wanted to rebuild myself, you know, as an individual. Somehow I had felt like um the choices of going in the center of Germany was very much making a choice for my husband, which I think is noble, you know, you sometimes you want to make some choices which are good for the family and that may not be you in the first place. But with this whole marriage falling apart and I felt very rejected and also lied. I wanted to rebuild my dignity for myself, so I wanted to live for myself. And I think for me, um, having a work where I can feel that uh, intellectually I'm respected and I can bring something to the table is a chunk of myself that I wanted to recover. I wanted to be financially independent, so I was ready to work hard to make sure my kids would be safe, that I could still give them the education they needed, that I would not have to make choices, choices due to money. So for me, that was really important also to recover that full independence and also being able to negotiate my divorce without having the pressure of money. And I really push women, do savings. Um, My rule is very clear. 10% of what you earn, you save. And if you've got a big heart, 10% of what you earn, you give. And the rest you can play with. But save money because this is your independence. This is your future. Most of us, will have very limited pension. And we need to have this money aside because this is freedom. This is really true freedom. So I worked out for those four years. I got blessed in return way more than I ever expected, uh, of course, financially, but also in what I've been learning. Uh, and I think somehow the consulting I'm doing today is very much around leveraging that learning, uh, meeting fantastic people that I still keep in contact with. So yes, it's, it's a choice that is hard. But if you're focused and you know what you're doing, what you're doing, you get what you That's that's a great
0: advice, uh, Delfina. Mm. Before we go into your uh, work at Zalando, I wanted to speak about uh, Flaconi. You're a member of advisors at Flaconi and Flaconi is online leader in beauty category in Germany. It offers a wide range of fragrances, care, makeup and accessories. What are your key responsibilities as a board member?
1: So Flaconi is an interesting adventure. I think um, what happens with a startup is that first you need to prove your case and work hard basically to make your company exist. And then at some point it starts growing and then the regulatory piece becomes really important. How are you working with your environment? How are you working with your shareholders? How do you finance the growth? And for this, you need to start structuring uh, your governance, basically the people who are supporting you in making sure that everything, every process is really in place from a legal point of view, respecting, making sure that there is full respect for your employees, you know, making sure there is no risk of uh, fraud or, you know, like employees stealing uh, money or uh, harassment. You know, you, you need to have this whole protection towards the employee and protection towards your shareholders. You know, that also if money is stolen, you know, we've seen some cases like Wirecard, you know, like it's not things that do not happen. They happen all the time. So I think what has been really interesting in the Flaconi story is that uh, because of the relationship I created uh, with the shareholders, I've been able to jump on board at the very beginning of this moment of structuring the governance. So I've supported them both from um, a a classical, I would say, governing council uh, aspect. So more on challenging, you know, where they stand compared to their budget, compared to their roles and things like this. But also I had a chance to help them along the way on the strategy piece. So uh, this job is really a mix of a, a classical non-executive and also a form of consulting and uh, being there and uh, being a, a sparring partner to the executive team. And it, it helps create a lot of trust. And I think um, this is how you can grow, you know, with having people, especially in smaller companies where the executive team is not so big, having more opinions around the table to be able to take stronger decisions for for the whole group. And
0: you bring that expertise uh, from your Zalando experience yes. as well.
1: You mentioned earlier that
0: getting on a board is important for you. Why is this so? So two
1: things. I think there is a little ego here. I have to say at Zalando, rather rapidly, I realized it would be very difficult for me to go to the top of Zalando. And with all due respect to what that company has been achieving and the extremely successful case that they have, the amazing people they've been able to recruit, there is still this little, you know, stone in the shoe is that Dalando is not great on diversity. And it's not, when I'm talking diversity, it's not only men and women. It's also having diversity of opinion and people who are from different religion, different sexual orientation. So in the last few years, there's been great progress. And I think this is really the way to go, is to make sure uh, you've got a most diverse way of looking at things, because this is this richness, intellectual richness and collective intelligence that gets you moving forward and accelerating and when I was there, there was still this very difficult situation for me to be able to really um, leave my mark in that group of young men, straight, Catholic, you know, white, German, and from the same university or the same McKinsey. That's a lot of all the same. So I realized it would be very difficult for me to get into the executive team. And I felt like in my development, I needed to be exposed to more Complex challenges because whatever is touching the shareholder is is kind of a different aspect of running a business, and it's something which is crucial for the success of, of companies like this. So I I asked my boss and said you know if I would get a non-exec, would you approve it? And luckily I did that before because I tell you I see a lot of women who wants to get non-executive roles, they get appointed but they don't get the approval of their company. So uh, actually my boss has been very uh, very supportive. And then I got that assignment at Fnac Darty, which is a list company in France, and and this is how basically I got this first non-exec role. So for me, there is an element of being exposed to uh, executive level and especially relationship with shareholders and really these different level and type of decisions happening. And of course, there is an element on the non-exec where it's a very t- different type of work, but you can have a great impact on people because you're at the top. So a little flip, you know, just a little move at the top. It's like, you know, when you're having a boat and you're just changing from one uh, degree the angle, you may win the race or not. I don't know. I'm totally into the Vendée Globe right now, this um, race around the world. And, and and so I've got all this imagery of sailing, but it's really this idea that a little change at the top, if it's really done uh, with a lot of intention can have a, a very big impact on all the employees and the company and beyond you know all the suppliers. So so I think it's it requires a very most a very different attitude, like very subtle because the way you express your ideas, the way you influence is is very soft. It's not like an executive where you take very like on and off decision all day. Yeah, I would say an executive is a lot of decision every day and, and, you know, going fast in taking your decisions. The non-exec is four or five times a year, reorienting, readjusting, pushing on the left, pushing on the right and putting the right uh, themes on the agenda of the executive. So, so the impact is, is what is driving me today.
0: Mm-hmm. And currently, on how many boards, non-executive and executive are you in?
1: So right now I'm, I'm on three boards. I was on another board that, uh, unfortunately, the company went bankrupt in in July last year due to COVID. So they changed uh, shareholders. So uh, the board was um, was um, put away, and, and a new board has been assigned, uh, linked to the shareholders. Um, so right now I'm on three boards. Uh, one is a listed company, so it's more of a regulatory board. And two are big companies, but not listed, where it's more of an advisory. So it's more of a governing council where we're, I would say, a bit closer to the business because there is less elements um, which are linked to legal aspects.
0: And what are the difficulties for women to get on a board, in your opinion?
1: It's not easy, mostly because the appointments on boards are based on trust. and Of course, there is an element of competence, but it's more than the um, functional competence and the knowledge of an area or a sector. It's also this ability to be able to push messages in a soft way. There is a lot of soft skills and how you steer discussions without being confrontational. So, So this whole aspect of how things are floating is linked to how people interact with each other. So... You would recommend someone in a board only if you know them enough that you feel, okay, they will really fit in this atmosphere. They will be a good sparring partner. They will not be too pr- provocative, but they will still push their ideas without shying away from if they see something bad to really raise their flag. So you require a lot of maturity and and to be able to assess that, it's not like if this guy is good in finance or not. Is that it's, it's more subtle and you tend to appoint people you know. So what's happening is that you've got to, Right now, boards are, you know, depending on countries, you know, in France, due to regulations a bit less, but it's definitely high majority of men. So they tend to appoint their friends and people they know and people who look like them because it's easier to recruit someone who looks like you. So because we have a limited number of women on the board, when, it, when times come to appoint new persons, they tend to appoint people who look like them. So it's really, I think a necessity to bring awareness uh, of the impact of having a diverse board. But again, this element of um, raising awareness is not something that uh, turns into action right away. And you can be aware of your bias and still have trouble fighting your bias. So I think the quotas are a really good thing to push um, really stronger and faster. And then we need to have sisterhood. We need to have women on boards supporting appointment of other women. And I've been leading an initiative with Lea-Sophie Kramer on that topic, and uh, we proudly appointed already several women on boards. One example is on the board of Decathlon, where uh, Catherine Anselm joined me uh, in July this year. And I think really this sorority is really, really important. Sisters helping each other um, so that we can make this happen. It's not a question of having women for the sake of women. It's really for the sake of diverse way of thinking, for a proper collective intelligence to happen for the good of companies and the people who are under. Thank you on
0: that. You have been working in retail and e-commerce since 1999.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, you are. (laughs) It's dinosaur, last century.
0: (laughs) What always attracted you in this industry?
1: You know, I arrived in e-commerce. I was um, still a young consultant, five years at BCG. I was female, young and very well paid. And I wanted to do something operational because I was really dying for seeing the result of my thinking and not only, you know, um, slides, which actually were real slides at that time, you know, in plastic. So I looked for a job, and uh, this was the booming of Internet back in 1999 in France. And I realized that like, Internet was all new, so there was a lot of thinking to be done. You know, we had to really invent things. Uh, imagine that I started Internet and doing newsletter before Google time. You know, like there was no MailChimp multi- at that time. You had really to think in HTML, you know, how am I going to program this and how am I going to send those newsletters? Is it going to work out? You know, can I? how many can I send a day and uh, all those kind of things um, and look at the funnel and the conversion and everything. So so there was a large chunk which was really intellectual and it was really down to earth. I mean, um, we were selling plants for the garden online and we were shipping mostly from nurseries. So what we would call today a 3P marketplace. But at the time, we didn't have that vocabulary. And it was very difficult to find someone who would be able to ship interior plants, you know, for decorating your home. So we actually rented a room in the basement of our building. It was opposite a nightclub. And then we were going there during the day to do trial and error on packaging. So we invented ways to actually ship plants, which would work. So we would carry all the plants to the post office, you know. And I really like that merge of, you know, very... Uh, down to earth and very intellectual at the same time, and then moving uh, from one to the other 10 times during a day. So I think this is what is driving me uh, the whole time on, on digital is that there's been a revolution every two years, you know, first with Google and AdWords and Facebook and bloggers and Instagram and AI, and it continues and, you know, like cryptocurrency. So it's intellectually very challenging because technology is moving so fast that what you thought 2 years ago is now either it's it's still valid but it's not a differentiator anymore or there is something new that you need to put your head around so you can be disrupted even though you're disrupted 5 years ago and uh, And at the same time, it's very operational. I mean, you can put something online, a new tool, a new system, and suddenly you see like huge surge in conversion, or you can be thinking of new products and then going with your you know suppliers and make uh, samples and prototypes. So it's um, this mix of very handy and operational and practical and uh, and the very conceptual work uh, that I really like uh, about uh, digital business. And in your opinion, what is going to happen to retail
0: and e commerce in the coming years? Maybe something is already happening.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of things happening. Maybe I'll describe what I wish to happen. I've seen through digital that a lot of marvelous things have been happening. I think connection between people has been enhanced. Of course, sometimes it's degraded because the way people interact online is not, there is a lot of hatred. Uh, But there is also a lot of good things happening and especially people who are able to find their tribe is happening a lot through the new technologies. And a lot of things like being able to share your car ride can happen only through internet. It's just because of the multitude um, of contacts that you can create. So I think retail can play with this. I think there is an element of uh, integrating the crafting and integrating the heart of the work. You know, like I've recently discovered this uh, crowd farming. So you can receive avocado, which are produced in Mediterranean area directly. And it's the same price as if you buy it at your uh, local grocery store. But it's a direct contact. You see the person, what they're doing. and, And I think this is something that can happen only through digital. So... I feel that uh, more and more small stores, small artisans, small craftsmen are going to be able to sell directly and make a living. And they will be decidedly paid because there will be no intermediaries. You will be able to access something that is completely unique. You know, I remember two years ago, I was with my mom. Uh, in the small streets uh, in Venice. And um, yeah, there were this little shop, you know, doing some beautifully handcrafted shirts. And they were not that expensive, but it's just like for this man to really work well, it's rather difficult because your store needs to be in a, a location. It needs to be on the store all the time and not necessarily being in, in the atelier. And, and I think the internet is really what can be brought to those uh, craftsmen and this knowledge, you know, it can really be brought to the people who really enjoy it and value it and restore uh, a very respectful relationship between supplier and, and customers. So I really see this trend uh, and you see it very much with all the, the bloggers and the Instagrammers who are uh, starting their own brand when they're passionate about a topic. So there is this kind of deconstruction and adding value based on the craft and the expertise you want to bring on a topic. I think the second element is really this retail experience so this is something I've lived in the Netherlands. There were a lot of places which were a kind of a mix of selling and living something. So for instance, um, kids store at that time I had young, young kids and toddlers. Um, it's really this store where you can buy clothing, but you can also buy toys and you can stop and read a book and you've got also a small coffee. And then once in a while, there is a psychologist coming and giving a training in that coffee. You know, this kind of mix of experience and selling place. And uh, again, you know, bringing some kind of new things here. My hairdresser that I miss very much right now because my hair is really too long. He's always have uh, um, art in his uh, salon, but also some products, you know, getting you to taste a new beverage down in Berlin. You know, this is this kind of mix that I think is going to come stronger uh, to really bring the essence of who the retailer is. You know, it's not only creating one ex- one element, but also bringing an experience And I think this will make those places in the city center where more interesting.
0: As we speak of uh, retail and e-commerce, you worked as VP markets at online fashion retailer Zalando for four years. How do you conquer a market successfully?
1: Yeah, so Zalando was an amazing experience on this fact that I was leading uh, the European team, so all the 17 countries. But I didn't have to travel. I was traveling from ground floor to first floor to second floor because everyone was based in Berlin. But we had true Italians, true Danish... True Spanish, uh, true Austrian, and all the different uh, countries all together with very different atmosphere depending on the on the areas. I still remember, you know, the the Spanish Spanish and Italian team cutting the big jamon uh, on the Friday evening. So we really had these vibes. And I think uh, to conquer a country, first you need to acknowledge the differences, and and it's all coming to diversity. You really need to value the differences in each of the country to be really able to adapt to those countries. So it comes from things which are uh, very obvious, like Trachten mode, you know, those Dirndl. You need to have a promotion around Dirndl in, in Germany and Austria and Switzerland. But of course, if you do that in France, people will look at you like, is this a costume uh, store here? So it's the same on the other side. You know, you might have some local habits that you need to cater for. You know, in French, for instance, most of all, you know, women like to, ha- to wear Iconics. So they always have, you know, a trench coat in their wardrobe. They always have these skinny jeans. So... You need to give them everything that they need in their wardrobe, which is might be very different from a, from a German person. So that's, of course, from, I would say, the assortment and emotion. Uh, there is also a big element around brands. It's been very challenging to get uh, the German team, uh, I would say, the supply team, which was very German, uh, not everyone was German, but a lot of German people in there, to really understand the need for having a local brand. Because, you know, what's closer to a black sweater than a black sweater? Well, the black sweater in fashion is also having a brand. So there is an identity to it. And as a local player, you tend to select local brands. And, you know, the French person wants to have the brands they know. So there is also this element of trust that you need to bring at a local level. And then, of course, there is all the the elements of local habits. In France, for instance, we had a very big fight uh, with the payment team around saving the credit card data. So not a lot of Germans are using credit cards and the ones who are using credit cards, they love the credit cards to be saved and they don't have to think about it and take it out. French people, they've been having kind of, there was in the early 2000s, there was this big thing and stigma around the credit card that is stolen online. And then it's because it's online used that it's stolen online, which is not the case. Of course, it was because the the French took a long time to take out the number in the credit card on the little ticket that you receive when you pay by credit card. So anyone who would take a ticket could use it online. And, and there's this kind of um, strong um, fear that your credit card is going to be taken. So you don't want to get your credit card saved. So I would say yeah, um, might be a bit less true now, but I remember when I was in France, I knew my credit card numbers by heart because I was entering them 10 times a day. <laughs> so you don't want your credit card to be saved. And it was a big fight at Salando because the French team was saying, can you please take it off? You know, put a a little tick box and unticked and people who want to have it saved will use it. But please don't say it's saved by default because people are afraid and they don't buy. And then we ended up with a long, long push uh, having it done. And then the payment team was so surprised that indeed the conversion was going higher because they thought it was impractical. It wasn't practical, but it was addressing local fear, local relationship to the payment method So that's an example which are very counterintuitive, but this is what you need is really asking the local people. And then, of course, you can do way more. We introduced uh, local carriers. We introduced in France specific payment methods based on the credit card, which replicates the payment invoice. So basically when you pay on invoice, you receive the invoice, you try out, then you return and you pay only what you keep. And then we did the same with a credit card, which took four years of development. So it was very complicated, but it was really going into all these elements, you know, from assortment, promotion, experience on the website, experience in logistics and payment. And of course, all the branding. And we had uh, local campaigns, we had global campaigns being localized. uh, Very interesting, for instance, in Poland, uh, when you localize and uh, you dub an American actor, you actually still hear the American actor speaking while you put the Polish line on top of it, which is very surprising. So if you're Polish, you say, yes, it's like this. And other people are just like, this is weird. Who did this job? So yeah, you need to integrate basically all the local knowledge. as we do a step back, how would you
0: start a research on each market?
1: So you really need to have first local people in your team who are going to give you the intuition because they know they know really well how it's done so it will be a big shortcut is first the cultural filter and then you need to add a lot of that data so uh, my team uh, especially uh, towards the end of my stay at Zalando I had a very big team doing market research and customer analytics and really diving deep into the understanding of the customer with true data to prove it. Because sometimes your intuition might be wrong or your statistical uh, relevance is not strong enough and then you take wrong decisions. So you really need to have a lot of data. And if you're a big company, you can really dig very uh, precisely uh, on the different sub sub segments and have the right decisions.
0: Perhaps you could name some of the biggest mistakes of business strategy and its application in different markets that yeah. you've seen.
1: Yeah, so I I will give just one example, which was uh, quite striking. I think it was my one of my very first meetings with the whole exec team on on the, you know big campaigns, and it was for Christmas. So uh, we were roughly in November two thousand fourteen. And the campaigns were prepared and they had planned in the Netherlands to have already a discount on on the 6th of December. And then the whole exec team was really mad at this and saying, we don't discount before Christmas. This is impossible. And then I thought, what do I do? What do I do? I need to speak up. And I said, well, in the Netherlands, people celebrate Sinterklaas and not Christmas. I mean, they do celebrate Christmas, but the big thing for gifts is Sinterklaas. So people buy their gift before the 5th. They give the gift on the 5th, and on the 6th, usually you start having discounts everywhere on the windows. It's not heavy discount like you have after Christmas here uh, in Germany, but it's, yeah, 20 30% discounts, I would say, in 95% of the windows. So if online you've got zero discount, you're just irrelevant. So I said, guys, this is the situation. And everybody said, okay, we discount on the 6th of December. End of the conversation, gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's, you know, this is the kind of mistake you do if you... Um, do not expect that there may be something that you don't know. So it's know what you don't know will avoid a lot of mistakes. So on anything you do, just ask, is there something I could miss? Is there a local habit that I might not be aware of? Is there an attitude toward lingerie, nudity? Is there something that people will react stronger? Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me more.
0: What would be your advice for
1: today? How do you trigger customer loyalty? Ooh, that's a big thing. Two elements on this. Deliver a fantastic experience and work on all the aspects of your experience and understand really the correlation between the element of the experience and uh, your customer satisfaction. Sometimes you do some things which are really, really great, but nobody cares. You know, if it would be just good, it would be enough. So it might cost a lot of money. But before you be able to do that beautiful experience, define what you want to stand for. You know, I see a lot of companies, and right now I'm uh, advising some startup in Google, that have an idea, but it's not very precise. And then when you want to stand for one thing on its contrary, then at some point you're not able to really focus. You know, if your service is bringing a specific expertise, then it's about this expertise, and then you need to put it very loud. And I think also there is a lot of companies and startup, we're very dull, you know, They, they look nice and clean, but you don't really know what they want to stand for. So I think you need to dare to stand out and maybe having colors which are striking or having fonts which are very different, but having an opinion, you know, having a color like look like someone who is standing out of the crowd. So dare to be the red apple in between the green apples or reverse, you know, but, you know, like uniformity and this kind of general coolness might look nice, but it doesn't help you to stand out. So I think stand out by being very precise on who you are as a company and what you want to offer, and then deliver big time on your promise.
0: That's a great advice. In one of the interviews, you mentioned the importance of noticing the details when serving the customers. It's that kind of attention to detail that makes customers feel at home with us. Where else do you actively apply this approach of attention to detail in your life?
1: (laughs) Huh. <laughs> yeah, I always say retail is detail and e-tail is super detail, especially because uh, on the internet, everything, everywhere can go wrong without using. I think one of the key elements was going from desktop to mobile. Uh, today, the traffic is on most websites between 60 and 90% mobile, and still I'm showing some design on desktop. I'm just like, can you please resize, you know, like those... And of course, when you resize, you always see a mistake. There is always a photo that actually is taking the whole space where it should be taking a small space. Um, I had also this habit of using an Android because in French, the market is strongly Android. And it tends to be the case that all startuppers, they have an Apple phone because, you know, it's cooler. But if basically you're using a phone that is not uh, the the what is used by your customers, you might miss a lot of things. So it's in this that you need to have really attention to detail. Is always testing, looking, paying attention to how people react. When you do exploration, read all the quotes that customer give. See if you might have a hint here or there. Where's the customer truth? You know, trying to really search for what you might have missed, what you don't know. It's, it's, it's still applicable. And in your personal life, where do you apply yeah, the in attention my personal to detail? Life, I'm trying not to be obsessed too much by details. Um, I think it's, again, this idea of focus. Uh, this year, for instance, I've been investing a lot in my new place. So I bought an apartment and and made some uh, uh, nice refurbishing, and uh, and I'm trying to go till the end in each room and thinking, okay, what do I really like to have? So last week, for instance, I've installed some very small shelves where I can. Uh, I've been able to put all my nice Christmas cards that I received and New Year's wishes, and it felt really good. Like it, it's a detail, but. It was just like bringing my friends into my kitchen area where I'm working very often. So this is where I I want to invest in details where it's making a difference. You know, it's like when you're organizing a party. Sometimes people put decoration everywhere and in the end we don't see anything because, you know, yes, it looks nice, but it's you know, it's not that striking. So I prefer to have like one big thing, which is really visible. So I put a lot of attention to the detail for this one thing that is going to stand out. And, uh, and then, yeah, it brings more.
0: Delfina, you're also a huge supporter of diversity and leading several initiatives to empower women to release their full potential. Could you tell us more about your work on this
1: front? So actually, I believe in the fact that you need some support in such a moment and in certain formats. So I've been organizing very different initiatives. Um, I started in the Netherlands having a dinner for French-speaking women who wanted to work, who were working, and it was from all sorts of walks of life, you know, the esthetician, the hairdresser, from women having huge jobs in chemical industry, and we were just all meeting, and it was very rich, and every month we had a meeting at a different restaurant, which was a way to explore the city, and sitting always with different women, we said, Every time you're going to meet two or three women, not everyone, but, you know, the, along the way, you'll create your network of of people. And um, this dinner uh, still happened today, you know, uh, what is it, 10 years later. So it's really nice to see that when something is really relevant for a certain group of people and very specific, it really works out and can last long. Uh, when I arrived in Berlin, I launched a chapter of PWN, which is Professional Women Network. It was a network I was part of in Amsterdam, which is very strong uh, across Europe, but not very strong in Germany. Um, so it was really aiming at helping women in middle management to really push to the executive level. Uh, so it was a very interesting group. I did it for two, a bit more than two years. And then at some point, there were so many new initiatives happening in Berlin in English. So I thought, OK, it's very difficult to cut through the clutter. So let's drop this. And then I created a group uh, for women who want to be on on boards. So it is not meeting very often, but it's been very productive so far. And uh, the other uh, initiative that I started two years ago is Rising Pineapples. Uh, This is the one which is dearest to my heart right now. It came from the day where Berlin decided to have a new bank holiday and decided to do it, thanks to a a female senator, on uh, the Women's Day. So Berlin, because it's not a, a Christian area of Germany, had less bank holidays than other lander. And then they decided to add one and decided to pick Women's Day. So I thought, wow, this is beautiful. And then in February, so uh, it's 8th of March. So in February, received a, an email from the school director saying, hey, careful. This year, there is a new bank holiday, which was not in the agenda. Make sure that you take care of your kids because there would be no school that day. And I thought, who are reading those emails? Ah, most of the time, it's mums, And then they read, take care of your kids. And I remember it was a Saturday, Sunday morning, I was showering and thinking, I need to do something, I need to do something. And I had in I done a vision board with women at the top, and I thought, okay, I need to organize something so women have a reason to take care of themselves. And I called a few friends, and they said, yeah, I'm on board. And then on Monday evening at an event at uh, The Family, I met Alice, uh, one of the founder of The Family, and she said, you can have our space, that's great. I was just, okay, I've got the team, I've got the space, I need to go. And four weeks later, we had the first conference. And the idea was to inspire. So having some form of TED Talks, so really going to 1.1 story, but putting a message through. Equip through workshops, so really giving tools that you can use the next day, and Connect. And and this Connect was spending a lot of time making sure that the women in the room would engage with each other and would be active in that day. And we ran it in 2020, uh, just before uh, the lockdown, We asked the authority and they said, yeah, you can run conferences with 150 people. In retrospect, it was a bit challenging, but nobody got the COVID. And uh, it was really an amazing day. And uh, we're continuing now doing some activities online. And I invite you, if you're, I don't know, a bit down one day, just go on the Rising Pineapple YouTube and watch the short videos. They're less than 10 minutes. And uh, it's really amazing stories, which will definitely inspire you. And since we're speaking of stories,
0: could you think of a woman... Who you would define as an author of her own achievements?
1: Ooh, so the difficult thing is that in the last two days I've been rereading those uh, comics. So it's a it's a French drawer who's been putting two uh, big books uh, with drawings telling the stories of exceptional women in the world, and and it's it's so impressive because you've got this rapper from Afghanistan and you know like. And some women, you know, who for the first time uh, in the 1900s, you know, became a vulcanologue on things like this. So all sorts of things. So my head is full of women right now. I think as a French woman, I always love the story of Marie Curie, who worked on uh, nuclear research. And especially because she was not French from origin and she was working with her husband, but really fought for herself as a a woman. And I think um, she was able to first work really hard on a topic uh, make sure she would be recognized, and she was also, as a person, also very self-aware, and she was different from the other women at that time. But she was very confident in expressing who she was. So I think she was strong both from a an expertise and a professional piece, but also in herself as as a person, as a in in her femininity. And I think this is very very impressive.
0: And before we wrap up our conversation today, could you share with us what excites you this year and what are some of your plans for 2021?
1: Okay. So funny enough, we had with Rising Pineapple a vision boarding yesterday. I had two things on my vision boards, which kind of were expected. So the first one is focus. So this year, I want to be even more intentional in working on my strength, uh, working on the talents I have, not trying to be someone else, but really be uh, who I'm meant to be. You know, it's it's really interesting. You know, you would you clearly see that if you're short, you're not going to be a basketball player. And still, if you're not talented in finance, some people still struggle and try to be, you know, the F- CFO. So it's uh, sometimes people put you in, in a position that is not you. And I think it's very important to know who you are, to be able to grow into who you should be. And this is one of my objectives for this year is to be even more focused and intentional in building the expertise and my visibility of my expertise on who I want to be and not someone else. The second one is last year I had a man on my vision board and this year I've got the power couple. (laughs) So if you've got a man who is into a long-term, potentially, you know, exponential relationship, send him my way. I would appreciate that. And the third thing, which was on my vision board, which I wasn't really expecting. It was really uh, dreaming big. My kid asked me, my two youngest who are living with me uh, at the moment, uh, what would you do if we were not there? You know, what would you do when we leave and go to university? And I said, I will be, I think, a nomad and going three months in a city, three months in another and meeting people because I truly get a lot of energy from discovering people and understanding what they're doing. And, and if I can help them in their strategy, that's even better. And then... When I was doing this vision board, I realized that actually, thanks to COVID, I can't do that without traveling because actually everybody's online at the moment. And I had already this year, several encounters with people around the globe. You know, I, I remember we had an interview with this woman in Kenya who's doing an amazing job. And this week I had interviews with people in Vienna doing also work for uh, social entrepreneurs. And so actually it's possible. So it seems kind of weird to say that Due to this pandemic, I'll be able to travel without having to leave my kids aside. And, uh, and I should be able to meet people around the globe. So that's one of my objectives for 2021. That looks like a really good year, Daphne. I'm sure it will be. And I wish you all the best for that year too. Thank you so much for coming and have a great rest
0: of the day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.